So I had my first physical since we moved up here. And so after we met with him the other day for quite a bit, and he told me, he says, you have perfect blood work for a 70-year-old. And he said, uh, and he knew I'd swam a thousand yards a day, and I was doing that the other day. And he said, I can't believe you're doing that. And so he said some other things. He said, you know what? If you die this year, you'll die healthy. <laughs> that just makes your heart feel better, doesn't it, when you hear that? So that, that, I guess that's a good thing. That's better, I guess, than dying unhealthy. But anyway, and then I did have a death this week. My truck went kaput. So I had to go buy a new one. My wife had to twist my arm to do it. So, and it, I, I looked everywhere for my uh, Chevrolet Sierra. I couldn't find it. Of course, it doesn't exist, but I was able to get one. I was telling Jan the other day, if someone had told us several years ago that after retirement, we'd buy a home in Fort Worth and pay what I paid for that house. And then I would buy a truck right afterwards and pay for it what I paid for it. And I paid cash for both. I'd have thought that was the craziest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. But life has gone a little crazy here in America with cost and everything else. But anyway, I'm glad the Lord helped me to get through all of that. And then the finished off the week. <clears throat> if you haven't seen Jesus Revolution, you need to go see it. That was amazing. I grew up during that. We had coffee houses at the First Baptist Church of Orange that came from that Jesus Revolution. It, it, we didn't have near what happened in California with uh, uh, Chuck Smith and with uh, Greg Lowry and even Lonnie Frisbee. But we all experienced it and was watching the movie. The Time Magazine came up. I still remember when the Time Magazine came out and, and seeing that and wondering the legitimacy of it, but God did some amazing things during those days, and we really could use another revolution of Christ within this country right now. But if you haven't seen it, it's well worth seeing. Uh, I went to uh, Israel with Calvary Chapel, got to know a lot of their members. Uh, they're a little bit different to some of the things I hold on to, but we both Christ-centered. I had more fun with them than I've ever had in my life, and still friends with them to this day on Facebook. And so um, a couple of my pastors I'd work with in Washington, D.C. were Calvary Chapel churches and uh, had great experiences with them when we were working in Washington. So I challenge you to go see the movie if you haven't seen it. All right, we're going to talk about walking in unity. This is the first step coming in chapter 4. Now, when you leave chapter 3 and you come into chapter 4, you're making a transition. This transition is important now. There are two types of people I fit in the first part. The first is there are Christians who are primarily, they just want to study. They just want to read and learn. I'm, I'm that type of, when it comes to this, well, I love being a pastor for all these years. I can't believe people paid me to be in a study and to study and read and write and do all those things for my entire life. But I love that. I, I uh, Years ago, I would was in a uh, discussion with somebody and I, I said, well, John Calvin, I was just something I'd heard in class, said this. And the guy told me he's evil. He, he got so angry at me. He was, I mean, just spewing all kinds of stuff. Well, I didn't know if he was good, bad, or evil. I just knew what I'd read in a book. So that sent me on a journey. And my journey is I've read every famous author that you could read. I read all of Calvin's Institutes. I read much of Martin Luther. I read everything that Augustine wrote. I, I read August Toplady, Rock of Ages author. He wrote, he was a theologian. 
I just started devouring book, and I did that. My wife would go to sleep about 9, 30, 10, because the kids had worn her out. I would lay down with her, and as soon as she went to sleep, I'd turn the lights on, and I'd get back up, and I'd get up and read till 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, because I wanted to know. I wanted to be dependent upon what other people thought. I wanted to know what was right, what others had said, and so I spent my whole life, I enjoy that. Now, a lot of people don't. So when it comes to theology, you don't want to spend a whole lot of time with it. <clears throat> Just hope you get the gist of it. But the first three chapters, Paul is driving home great, phenomenal theological truths that you have to know. Now, for others, they're more experiential. They just want, tell me what I'm supposed to do. I just give me the one, two, threes. How am I supposed to live? Well, and I, that's not as much of my reading. Never has been. I've always read in the theological part. I don't read how-to books and practical stuff. Just have never done that. But you know what? You need both. You need both. If you don't have the theological, you'll never understand the basis of how you and I are supposed to live. When you look at Romans... 11 chapters of the Paul's writing to the church at Rome is theology. Detailed explanation of what Christ has done for us. Ephesians more condensed, but the first three chapters are who we are in Christ and what he has done for us and what God's purpose is. When you get to Romans chapter 12, it then now says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is what he's been teaching us. Now, here's how I want you to live. And he goes through simple, practical steps, very quick steps, all the way through the rest of Romans. Paul's going to start that today. And we're going to start the transition because we're in Christ. How are we now to live? We're not into the practicalities just yet. We'll get to that around verse 23, but we're getting now to the basis of what should be seen in our lives. So if you'll stand with me, let's read the first seven verses. You follow along in your Bibles, and here's what God's Word says to us this day. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Father, speak to us in a clear way today of how you want us to walk. Help us to grasp and understand this in a very clear way today. After all we've been studying over the last couple months, help us now to see the, how this now impacts who we are and how we're to live as we walk each day with you. Now watch over and guide us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So when I go to verse 1, very practical, tells us where to walk through life. Now he starts with this, I implore you. The word implore is interesting. If I said the Greek word, you, you're probably not going to know it, but you might catch it. Parakaleo, paraclete, it's reference to the Holy Spirit. A parakaleo means I'm calling you next to me. I'm calling you alongside of me. I want you to stand next to me. Paul, and it's, it's a passion here. He is pouring out to them, join with me now. What I'm about to say, I'm asking you, join with me. Be a part of what's about to happen. 
And he says, the basis of his employing is that we've been called. Now, we have spent the last several weeks just looking in detail at what Christ has done for us. We saw in the opening chapter that we're the most blessed people in all the world. That we have been blessed with about 13 or 14 spiritual blessings that are ours and that nobody can ever take them away from us. They are gifts that God has given to each and every one of us. And after Paul explained that, he said, I pray that you'll help them to understand this. They'll understand the power of God at work in their life and this power that will transform who they are. He gets to chapter two and he begins to unfold again. He says, you weren't even close to having this. You shouldn't even be here. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You're being influenced by the world. You're being influenced by Satan himself and by the spirit of the age. And you were children of wrath. You had absolutely no hope of any kind, but God, I love verse four of chapter two, but God being rich in mercy with the great love, which he loved us, he has made us alive. We went from being dead in our trespasses and sin, and he has made us alive. We have been given the ability to live and we've been given a, a purpose. And he begins to explain the purpose. And the purpose is this, for by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of yourself is a gift of God, it has nothing to do with works so that none of us can boast. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He took us from death to life so that now we walk in doing good in this world. You know, I, I'm not a writer, never have been. My, I write a lot, but I'm not a writer. Uh, when I took the GRE to get in the doctoral program, I scored in the top 1% uh, in the nation in quantitative and analytical. I scored in the top, top 60% in English. The professor at Southwestern said, you have the highest score we've ever let in on quantitative analytical. You may be the worst we've ever let in the doctoral program in English. I've always struggled with that. When I wrote my doctoral paper, it's 500 pages, I had about 65 split infinitives. I didn't know what a split infinitive was, and I was a doctoral student. I had to go figure it out and then retype the entire paper to get those corrected. I, I'm, I'm just, I, I don't understand English very well, but one thing I do know, my God saved me and has given me life. I may not always understand all that's involved in this, but I know he knows me. Stop for a moment, do you? Not just come to church, but do you know that he knows you? And do you know him? It's one of the greatest blessings ever. That's what he's been telling us about. Now let's walk different. We're to move in the direction which he created us for, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Therefore, walk in your good works. And so he's called us to do this. We're to walk through life. A minute ago, that bucket was sitting right here. Good illustration, so let me use it too. That top part, that's who we are before Christ, right? The little cup down there filled with the water. I'm still watching, make sure you don't get sick. <laughs> but that's who we are now in Christ. When you pick up the clean water, that's who you are. How can you not live differently with all that garbage gone now? Been forgiven. 
That's, one of, that's a great picture of who we are in Christ. And so what Paul's saying, I'm imploring you, join with me now. As we are now new in Christ Jesus, let's walk differently. And this walk is all the way through the entire New Testament. I can find it all the way through the book of Proverbs. Paul is going to say in three different letters, he's going to say to the church at Colossae, walk in a manner worthy. He's going to tell the church at Thessalonica, walk in a manner worthy. And he tells the church here in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy. And that means to walk in good works, walk in new life, walk in love, walk in children of light, walk as wise men. Paul gives similar advice to other churches, and those walks I just said are in Ephesians. But he tells the church at Corinth, walk by faith. He tells the church at Colossae, walk in Christ. He tells the church at Galatia, walk according to the Spirit. You and I are called to walk through life in a whole new way. And may I say walking, I think is critical. We're not in a hurry. We're not in a hurry. You're not going to make great transformations. It's a slow process of walking through life. I've seen it in my life. You've seen it in yours. You know, walking is one of the great exercises you can do. It was hard for me to believe that, being an athlete most of my life, but now when I'm at the age when athletics don't work well with my knees, I'm not walking a lot, but the doctor keeps saying it's the best exercise. It's, I still think running would be, but my best friend is a marathoner, Russell. He ran about 12 marathons and was just about to qualify for the Boston Marathon whenever he found out he had the Widowmaker 98% blockage and almost died, had to have heart surgery. He was in perfect physical shape. He said later, he said, I learned that all my running over ball was overtaxing who I was and causing what I already normally had because of my situation and made it worse. And now he's, he's a walker. But I want you to say something, guys. We're in a step-by-step walk through life. See, I've always tried to hurry through life. My mom, if I remember one thing my mom said to me all these years, son, Quit wishing your life away. What did she mean? When I'm 12, I want to be 13. I want to be a teenager. I don't know why, but that's what I wanted to be when I was 12. When I was 13, I couldn't wait to be 14. Why 14? Well, when I was a kid, 14 in the state of Texas, you got your driver's license. I know that may sound crazy today, but at 14, we got our driver's license. On my 14th birthday, the state of Texas changed it to 16. So then I couldn't wait for 16. And then I wanted 18 because something about 18 meant you were maybe a man. But then that was a draft for Vietnam. But then I want to be 21. And then from 21, my goal was 25 so my insurance would go down. And then I wanted to be 30, 35, because I was a young minister and nobody wouldn't hire a, a pastor in their 20s. I'd had several looking at me, but they'd back off, said he's way too young, and they wouldn't hire me in my 20s, and that was the smartest move those people ever made by not hiring me. And I kept wanting to get older. And my mom would see that growing up, and she said it over, Steve, quit wishing your life away. See, we're not in a hurry we're only been given today anyway. I think we more than likely, most of us need to slow down a little bit and just enjoy the life that God has given us with joy and peace and thanksgiving every day, knowing who we are in Christ. 
He says this, he who begins a good work in you is going to bring it to completion when Christ comes. So you're going to get to where you want to be. But let him work out the process in your life. You and I are to walk. And when you do that, if you walk with other wise people, you'll become wise. If you walk in righteousness, it'll demonstrate that you truly do fear God. If you're a man of understanding, because you begin to grasp and understand these truths, you will walk straight in life. And if you walk blamelessly, you've been promised to be delivered, to be protected through life. So the, the key matter here is that once you know who you are in Christ, you're not in a hurry. You just take a day at a time. You don't worry about tomorrow, Matthew 6. You seek his kingdom and his righteousness today. And you enjoy the day which you have. Now, some of you in this room are older than I am, but you also know something. Life is like a hand's breadth. You take your hand, run it across your face, you feel the wind. That's how long you live, according to the psalmist. That never made sense to me until now I'm 70 years of age. And I wonder, where did my high school days go? Where did the college days? How can my grandson be in college now? How can this happen as fast as it did? I've kind of learned at this age, and I'm just, I don't have a promise how long God leaves me on this earth, but I'm going to enjoy each and every day and take it easy. Work hard, but take it easy. But now, what do we do with the walk? Because everybody's going to be moving through life. Now he instructs us in how to walk in a manner worthy. And these three things are critical. The first thing is you walk in all humility. Notice that he uses the word all in front of humility. There's no part way humble. Humility is very critical. James and Peter are joining in with Paul on this. You know from your study of the book of, the book of James, he's going to say, humble yourself in the presence of, of the Lord, and he will one day he will exalt you. Peter is going to say in his first letter, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. All humility is is this is that you, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, you consider other people more important than yourself. You consider everyone around you more important than you. That's humility. Well, you're saying that's asking me to really step up here at this point. No, Jesus, that's where he walked. Have this attitude in yourself in chapter 2, verse 5 of Philippians. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, the humility. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Found an appearance as a man, came as a bond slave, but he eventually humbled himself to the point of death, death on the cross. He died for us, but God now will exalt him, and one day every one of us will bow before him. The humility of Christ. He's calling now, you live that out. When I understand that my salvation is based on grace alone by Christ Jesus, and I did nothing to make this happen, and he's given me this, then do I not want to see this happen in everybody else's life? And the people you need to show humility to more than anything else is those in your family. Do not underestimate the importance of family. It is very important. Those of you who have good families, you better appreciate greatly what you got. Those who have very difficult family lives, listen to the midst of this. You might be the one that God's called to step up to the plate and give testimony to his grace and mercy. 
to show humility to those who are around you? Was Moses a humble man? Scripture said he was a very humble man. In fact, he was the most humble man on the entire planet. Go back to Numbers. You will find that. You have to walk in humility. Nothing else falls into place if you don't get this part right. The second thing you're to walk in is in gentleness. Now, this is a word that we don't use real often, and it's not an easy word to define. But we're called to do this. Jesus said this, blessed are the gentle because they're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. It is part of the fruit of the Spirit. He tells the church at Philippi, let your gentle spirit be made known to all men because the Lord is near. It's to be a key characteristic of pastors. Gentleness is to be a key characteristic of all that we do who stand up in these positions. Women, it's said to you that you're to have a gentle and quiet spirit. That is precious in God's sight, 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're told in 1 Peter 3.15 that you and I are to be sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. So always being ready to make a defense. And when we make a defense of the hope that we have in Christ, we do it with gentleness. Servants of God are called to correct people in gentleness. So what does that mean? It's power under control. It's power under control. It was used of horses in the Greek lifestyle that when it was wild and untamed and they would eventually get it tamed so it could be ridden and used in battle or wherever they needed the horse for, that that horse was as powerful as it was while it was wild, but it's now under control. When you and I come to know who we are in Christ Jesus, then we should start to get control of who we are, our emotions, all the things that make our life sometimes not very good. We're to bring that under control. In fact, here's what I, I think it is. I think you become the safest person in the room. I one time said that years ago. And my wife was sitting off the side where she always sat. She had come off the piano. I was in the middle of the sermon. She always sat right over here. And so I had said that, and she's never forgotten that. Of everything I ever said, that became important to her. Safety for my wife is a big deal. And she's used that against me on several occasions. When I'm driving, she'll look at me and say, how safe are the people on the freeway around you right now? I said, would you quit listening to my sermons? But it is right. Do people walk on eggshells around you? Do people watch you and determine whether you're in a good mood or bad mood at this particular moment? Because that'll determine how they're going to act or what they're going to say. You ought to be the person that when people walk up to, they know that they're going to be treated the same with the kindness and the goodness of what Christ is trying to do, no matter what goes on in life. And if I bring humility to it, you're more important than me, then my response to you is going to be in gentleness. Now, if that's not a good enough thing, Paul told the church of Philippi, let your gentle spirit be made known to all because the Lord is near. The next time you're about to lose it, say something you shouldn't say. Just realize God's right there watching you. See, when I'm a kid growing up in Orange, First Baptist Church of Orange, 
we had this huge choir. We were a big church when I went to First Church Orange many years ago. And so it was the old type of worship with the organ, the piano, and sang the hymns with big choirs, all adults. My mom sat right over here on this side. Now, I'm in the youth group. Where do you sit? Back row of the balcony. We had a big balcony. As far up there as you could get. Why did we do that? So we could talk, pass notes, do the stuff that kids do. We have great stories of things that took place up in the balcony during worship service that we can even tell even to this day. But I'll never forget one time I was up there and we were probably not doing good. In fact, I know we weren't. And Jody, my friend, goes, somebody's looking. And I looked up and my mom was staring a hole through me. I'm not staring a hole through any of you guys up there, but she was staring a hole through me. It is amazing how fast my behavior improved. It really did. Now, that's a crazy little story, but do you not realize that God's right there watching you? In your interactions with family and friends and people, schoolmates, whoever it is, and what he's called here is, I want you to walk through life. You're not in a hurry, but when you walk through it, I want others to be more important, and I want you to be under control. It is a gift that I have given you to be able to do that, and there's no reason you and I can't. The third thing is, and that we will be patient with each other. You'll notice that phrase there, with patience. Oh, you said you got to bring up patience, don't you? Well, the word patient means long-suffering. It means to endure. It is one of the fruits of the Spirit. I am told as a pastor, my job in the Scripture says, I have to exhort you guys with great patience. And after doing this 45 years, I do understand that. It's, you're not going anywhere quick. I had to learn that with my own kids, trying to teach them. It took a lot of patience to do that because nobody changes that quickly. We keep driving home the truths. Patience means I'm willing to wait. I'm willing to endure. And, you know, people are always saying, well, preacher, pray that I have patience. You really don't want me praying for you to have patience. Because how does patience come? Through suffering. What do you mean? Well, listen to Romans 5, 3. But we exalt in tribulations. Very few people do that. But Paul says we exalt in tribulation. We exalt when we're being pressed in life. When we're being crushed down in life. Because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And we know something. Hope will never disappoint. So when I walk through life, what I'm to do is walk with humbleness, walk with gentleness, and walk with patience in everybody that I deal with in life. Now, is a preacher perfect at this? No. If you hang around me long enough, you'll find out I still struggle sometimes in all this. We all do. But it does not take away that this is important, how you and I are to walk every day of our lives. Back in 1983, I got accepted the doctoral program at Southwestern Seminary. I'd worked hard for that. I'd been two years preparing, and I got the letter. My pastor had helped me to be able to get in. He had helped me with some things and everything else, so he knew what was involved in this. Well, that day finally arrived. I don't know if he knew, thought I was going to make it or not, but it finally arrived. And so I had planned that I had to be at Southwestern for four weeks in October, four weeks in February, and four weeks the following October, and then the rest I do from a distance. 
He said, how are you going to pull this off? I said, well, I have two weeks I'm allowed to go to conferences. I have two weeks of vacation. I'll be here every Sunday. I'll just be gone at those six. And Gilbert looked at me and he said, no, you won't. I said, what do you mean? Here's your choices. Do the doctoral program and quit. Stay and quit the doctoral program. Take it to church, but I'll stand against you and let them decide. You know, it's easy to be in classrooms. It's not easy being in life sometimes. Went home. Let's make it a little more difficult. Jan is seven months pregnant with our third child. I honestly felt God called me to do this, but now I wonder. So Jan and I talked, and I can't believe she joined with me, but she's always, she and I have always gotten along well. She said, you know, I really think God's leading you to do this. Let's just quietly call it quits, and let's just quietly go. So I tried to get a job somewhere up in Fort Worth so I could work on my doctorate. I had a month before I was not going to be there anymore, and I was not going to cause any trouble of any kind. But you know one of the things I thought was? There's a job possibility. I have two churches, one in me as pastor. One's in Beaumont. One's in Baytown. On September the 17th, I, I resigned uh, September 1, effective October 1, to start school. On September 17th, I get a call at 7 p.m. This is still very real to me because I can remember exact moments of everything. And it was Baytown, Eastside Baptist Church in Baytown. I said, Steve, listen, we've enjoyed talking with you. You've got a lot of potential, but we're going to go with a guy who's 20 years older than you. Thank you for letting us consider you. It's okay. Thank you. I, I understand. 707. Westgate Memorial Baptist Church in Beaumont called. Steve, thank you for talking with us. Narrowed it down to two, but we're going with other guys 20 years older than you. Literally both were 20 years older. I was hating 20-year-older men at that moment <laughs> because I had nothing now. I am two weeks from unemployment. My wife's going to have a C-section because that's what the first two were. My insurance will not be effective once I step down. What do you do when you're sitting there at that particular moment? My dad later said, son, I've never seen anybody with more faith and trust at that moment. I didn't have it, guys. I was scared to death. I felt like the most stupid human being ever to have put my wife in that position. I even, she went to bed that night totally exhausted. I couldn't sleep. And so I got up and went outside and walked the streets of Live Oak, which is northeast San Antonio. I'll tell you something. It's close I've ever come to running. I was this close to just wanting to disappear and get away. Came back home. Finally fell asleep. Next morning I told Dan, I said, Lord's going to have to do something. I put us in a mess. And if he doesn't work this out, I need to get out of the ministry because this isn't real. This isn't real. I've been doing ministry for about four years when this unfolds. I graduated in 79. This is 83. So if it's not real, I 
I, I, I used to work for Kroger in management. I could go back and do that. So it, I really didn't mean to sidetrack this much, but this really thinks important. In the most dramatic of way, I stayed at Live Oak First Baptist Church for four more years. I never missed a paycheck. I graduated my doctorate. We had our child and everything was taken care of. The story is very long of how God worked that out. And Gilbert and I became the best of friends even to this day. He's in his 90s and we still keep in touch after all these years. That'll be a story for another time. But I saw God do something dramatically in my life. See, I've learned something. At tough times, you ought to consider, thank God for them. Because that's where you and I get the strength. You never shaken me since when it came to money. There's much I've never been shaken about since. Because I learned that experience in 1983 that if God said it, God was going to do it. And God would take care of me and my wife and my kids. And he has done it. I am to walk through life. The experience I learned through that was to walk humbly, to walk gently, and to walk with patience. My daughter the other day was telling some people, I don't know if dad ever gets angry. I've not seen him angry in years. Well, I, 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 things frustrate me and things kind of get to me, but I don't react. I want people who are around me to be safe. Because I've been made safe in Christ. I want people to have what you and I have come to know to be true. And the only way we can do that is live this out in a very powerful way. Now what that does is, Jesus said this, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. All we're called to do is live out Christ. It's not easy to learn to do this, but we're called to do this, to move this direction in our lives. And it says when you do that, what happens? You find rest for your soul, and you, many of you can testify with me, that rest is real. It is not a church terminology we just throw around. It's real. When you lay your head down at night, it's real. And Jesus promised that to us. So you know what that leads to now? Leads to this, and what time is it? Okay, you may be here a while. No, I'll get through real quick. The result of walking in a manner worthy produces a unity of the spirit. This is critical. Everything God does is to accomplish his perfect will and his perfect plan for the world. So as Ephesians 2, 4, he says he's taking the two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, the nations and the nation of Israel, and he's breaking down the barrier wall between them. He's bringing them together as one. He is reconciling both groups into one body to God through the cross. We are now all fellow citizens and saints. We're part of God's household. There is one foundation, Christ, one cornerstone, holding all of this together. One holy temple and one dwelling of God. You and I are the most blessed people because we get to be a part of that. And now because of that, he's accomplishing this through one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. What he's doing is he's bringing us together so that we become one 
in order to be able to walk through life. And we need each other to be able to do that as part of the body of Christ. And what you and I are to do on the basis of verse 3 now is to what? Diligently work together to preserve the unity that we find in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because there's a bond of peace that comes. And that comes through hard work, working hard with each other, overcoming, forgiveness, all those kind of things. But we can do this. And we do it by showing, I don't like the word in New American Standard at this point. It says by showing tolerance to one another, because that word's got a total different meaning nowadays. But it means I endure, I accept you. Sometimes you're maybe a little difficult for me to be able to get through. But I endure through that. I learn to accept you know, my job as pastor for having 1,500 members for all those years, and we were high turnover, so literally thousands went through our church during my 30 years there because of military. But my job was to learn to accept whoever was in the congregation, rich or poor, to sit down with the poorest person at church and have a great visit, or sit down with the second in command of USAA. To sit over here with a, a lieutenant who thought he was special, but he wasn't. He was just a lieutenant. Or to sit over here with a one-star or two-star general. My job was to bring everybody together as one. And that's what God has called us to do. And that's what this whole thing is to the church. You've come from, in, in Ephesus, you're from a diverse background with a morality, a diverse background of idolatry, of a level that the rest of the world had never seen. But God has worked in you in the most amazing way, and he's bringing you together as one. And now you walk through the world as one in humility, gentleness, and patience, and you learn to accept each other. I will say this, and I close, I'll wrap it down. When I was at Village in the early days, it was tough on me. It was the toughest two years of ministry I ever had. Um, a lot of things had gone wrong. Church was deeply split. And so I walked into a, a mess. And I knew I was walking in a mess. I had a million dollars I had to find to pay off the debt. There were a lot of things that were tough about that. I had a school that was out of control. The school was running the church instead of the church running the school. Uh, I, I fired a principal my first month there because of immorality. There's just everything tough beyond imagination was going on. And my biggest enemy made my life miserable. He came in one day, he was so mad at me, he couldn't see straight. He called me every name in the book in my office, walked past the secretaries. He didn't like something. I didn't even know what was going on. I didn't even know about it. I said, listen, I, I don't, I need to learn. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what you're talking about. And he just kept screaming at me. Finally, he screamed this. I never forget as long as I live. I don't understand you. I said, well, listen, I'll give you my secret. You're going to get mad before I get mad. You're going to say something before I say something. And you're going to overreact before I overreact. If you want my secret, I'm going to outweigh you. I will tell you that 30 years later, he's one of my closest friends. I would trust him for anything. And he's got my back always. I know how this works. I've seen it. But it takes it when people are willing to stand up and say, I'm going to be what God's called me to be. I'm going to walk with him in a manner that is pleasing. 
Remember this, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, according to Paul in Romans. And Romans says, don't destroy your brother for whom Christ died, but let's pursue together, he says in Romans, building up one another. Romans ends just where we are right now in Ephesians of us bringing us together. So I close with this. Does it work? Let me ask you a question to that question. Do you believe that doing good is good? It's a really interesting question. If I ever write a book, but I told you earlier I'm terrible at English, so I probably won't, the title will be good in parentheses. And then the second word will be works. We're called the good works, but I'm going to say this, good works. It really does. You want to transform toughness in your family right now? Then you be good. You want to change something at work? Then you be the one who's good. Walk it with humility, with gentleness, with patience. God will bless that. He's promised he will bless that. The gentle inherit the earth. We're again the most privileged people in all the world. We have been given grace through Christ Jesus our Lord. We ought to be filled with such peace and joy that it reflects in everything that we do. In our song, in our families, in our classes that we meet for Bible study. And to see each other make progress in Christ together is the epitome of what this is about. That we can see God at work in our lives, in your lives, in my lives. And we move through this in the most unique and powerful way. That's what I found fascinating about the Jesus Revolution the other day when I watched that. It's how God took the most ragtag bunch of people you've ever met and so literally transformed their lives. And they came one of the greatest churches in American history under Chuck Smith and also Greg Lowry. So God can take the, the most dredge part of life and bring you up and sit you right in his kingdom and turn you into the most amazing thing. And that is he's turning you into the image of the Lord Jesus every single day. Join with me as we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the love and grace that we found in Christ. Help us, Lord, for our lives to truly reflect that grace. Help it to be seen and being real. Help church to be more than just showing up on Sunday to be around friends, sing a few hymns, sit through a sermon, and then go home. May it become all of our life. May everything we do as we walk through life give demonstration of the presence of Christ within us. As Paul told the church at Galatia, we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. In the life we now live, we have lived by faith in the one who gave himself for us. So, Father, help us to trust you each day as we walk through life. And help us to be the kind of men and women you've called us to be. It is my prayer this day in Jesus' name. Amen.